Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. It's Friday, June 10th. I'm Erin O'Toole. Before we go any further, I need to let you know this is the last time I'm going to be hosting this podcast. After many amazing, wonderful years at KUNC, I've decided it's time to try out some new challenges and chart a new path. The podcast will continue with the KUNC news staff at the helm, so keep listening so you can stay up to date on what's happening in northern Colorado. But since we're here, how about a clip show? Since Colorado Edition launched on Labor Day 2019, I've had the opportunity to interview hundreds of people and share their stories of triumph, wisdom, overcoming adversity, and just doing what they can to help bring light during dark times. In this episode, I'd like to share just a couple of those moments that really stood out to me. We'll start with Dr. John Geller, a veterinarian in Fort Collins. Like so many of us watching footage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, he was captivated and saddened by images of hundreds of Ukrainians escaping with their beloved family pets. He wanted to do something to help make sure everyone could stay together, given that many refugees would be traveling to other European countries once they got out. So this past March, Dr. Geller hopped on a plane and headed overseas to help set up a clinic that provided care for both the animals and the their humans. Seeing someone who saw a problem in the world and went to go do what he could to help, that was something I found really inspiring, and I wanted to talk with him. I met up with Dr. Geller in April, just a few days after he'd returned from the Ukrainian border. I want to start by asking you how the idea to go to Ukraine came about. Did someone ask you to go, or did that just come to you? Yeah, actually, I mean, it's like everybody else wanted to go, wanted to go help. So dismayed at seeing what was going on over there, and my wife actually uh, prompted me to go. She says, "Well, instead of just talking about it, why don't you do something? You see the pictures of all the pets. Um, you should go over there and, and see how you can help." And so I kind of went over there blind, meaning I didn't really know what I was going to do. I had two two large suitcases of uh, medical supplies because I knew those would help somewhere, and I was able to connect with. Uh, some local veterinarians that were working at, the, who were living at this one border station uh, called Isatia in southern Romania. And they said, yeah, come down here, we'll figure out how we can do this. And so where were you in relation to Ukraine? Uh, I was on the Danube River, which separates Ukraine from Romania in, in southern Ukraine. And so I was pretty close to where that river uh, drains into the Black Sea. And the closest city to us would be Odessa, which has um, come under some pressure recently. It's about a three-hour drive away. But folks from southern Ukraine, especially southwest Ukraine, would be coming through our border station. And so how were people arriving there? Were they on foot or? They were both on foot and in cars. And I think some of them may have arrived by bus and train. The station I was at was a ferry crossing. So they all came across on a ferry, either in a car or on foot. Of course, we all saw the incredible images on the news of people fleeing with their pets, often in their arms. I, I'm wondering what kind of care you um, provided for the animals. Well, we kind of had two different things we were doing. Is One is to, to provide basic veterinary care if it looked like they needed it. And 
The other part was to provide them, along with this care, was what's called a pet passport, which is required in the European Union to travel between countries. And without that, they wouldn't have been able to leave Romania with their pet. And many of them were planning to leave Romania to go further west to to Germany, for example, or, or maybe even France. And so to do that, we had to do some technical procedures like microchips. We had to do rabies vaccines, deworming. And so in addition to that, then we took care of any other minor medical problems they had. We also had use of a local veterinary hospital for any serious problems. Well, let me ask you about the people you encountered. When they arrived at your clinic, what kind of shape were they in? They were, uh, on the out- outward, outwardly, they appeared fairly stoic. And and then when we'd start talking to them, um, some of them would really express their dismay at what was happening and break break down a little bit. Physically, though, they seemed okay. And, and remember, this was all almost women and children and some older men because anyone between 18 and 60, any man, was required to stay in Ukraine unless they had an exemption. And it was amazing watching all of the baggage and little kids that they were hauling in addition to their pets. So I'd say you mostly it was Ukraine women, and, and these women are really tough because the weather when I first got there was brutal. This cold wind was blowing across uh, from Ukraine, but they were uh, they were unperturbed, and, and they really wanted to make sure their pets got taken care of. And I'm curious what the atmosphere was like at the, the tent clinic. I mean, how was it to be there with, you know? It was... It was amazingly positive, amazingly positive. In between, these, these folks would come over on these ferry boats, and so there'd be a wave of folks. We'd take care of their pets. They'd be getting fed and everything. And then we'd just kind of you know, hang out and celebrate and have fun doing, you know, there's a little Greek restaurant that's set up, and you know, we'd do some music and Greek dances and things like that. It was just so much fun meeting, again, you know, everybody at the border. I was pretty much the only American that, that was there for any length of time and felt humbled to be around uh, folks from all over the world. I'd like to ask about your work with the Street Dog Coalition. Of course, you founded the organization. It's a nonprofit. Can you tell me a little bit about what the organization does? Our mission is is pretty straightforward. We provide free veterinary care to pets of folks who are at risk of or experiencing homelessness. And we are, uh, even though we're focused, we have a heavy focus in Northern Colorado, we have volunteer veterinary teams in close to 50 U.S. cities that do free clinics on a semi-regular basis for these folks. It's interesting because you're, it sounds like you're used to working in a kind of non-traditional clinic setting. Did that help you in Ukraine? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we were we were kind of made to do this work. You know, we, do, we call it street medicine. And human physicians do some of that too, where we just set up clinics, mobile clinics, wherever the people are. So we, we bring the medicine to the people to make it convenient. And we also work with minimal resources to see how much uh, veterinary care we can provide without x-ray machines and lab equipment and all that. And then the group of people we were working with had similar circumstances. They were they were homeless, they were transient, they didn't have home addresses. And so it, uh, it, it was, we were set up to do this and, and so far it's been pretty effective. How does it feel knowing that you have been able to make that kind of difference for people and their pets, both here and abroad? Well, I'm just I'm just glad. The best thing really is getting other people involved. So we have a lot of, for example, veterinary students that are starting to do this kind of work. There is more to veterinary medicine. I, you know, I tell my colleagues than you know, going to work at your hospital, seeing pets, getting paid, and go home. It was, it's like this is how we engage with the world outside of the walls of our hospital. 
And so that's resonating with lots of uh, veterans, but also other folks. And, and we call it One Health, where we're getting medical providers, uh, mental health providers, dentists, et cetera, t- to join forces to do these One Health clinics. To some degree, that's what's happening at the Ukraine border also. Because you're not just caring for the animals, you also talk to the owners, the people. Yeah, and we talk about working on both ends of the leash, and we've kind of shifted really more and more toward toward the pet owner side because the pets are pretty straightforward to take care of, and, and the pet owners that are experiencing homelessness and are unsheltered and the Ukraine refugees have a lot of things going on that we can at least be good listeners uh, to them and help provide resources uh, for those for them as well with their problems and issues. I know people hearing this will want to help in some way, and we can include links to any methods too, but what's the best way to help out? Well, people have been amazingly generous so far, and we really appreciate it. And we've been funneling uh, some of the donations we've gotten back into the border to some other smaller nonprofits that are, like, for example, sheltering some of the pets. And so uh, the streetdogcoalition.org is our website, and, and people can tag their donations as Operation Ukraine, and, and they will be used directly on the border. Everybody's a volunteer that's working there, so it goes toward things like travel costs, medical supplies, and other med- any medical equipment. Last question. I'm just curious how this experience has changed the way you think about what you're doing or, or changed you in some way. Well, it really did change me because I realized this international groundswell of support for the Ukraines has made a, had a unifying effect on the world because I saw volunteers from all over all over the world that was it was almost like a little Olympic village that was set up at this border station. There wasn't a real town there, and it's overshadowed some of the negativity of COVID and and some of the controversy and divisiveness that I've been used to dealing with, especially regarding, for example, the homeless populations we work here with the U.S. None of that came into question there. Everybody was there to help them. And to see that kind of outpouring of love was pretty amazing and you know, gave me a lot of hope for the future. Dr. John Geller, it was so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity, Aaron. I really appreciate it. There's a long history of people creating guides to help other people find safe, inclusive spaces. In the 19th century, safe houses along the Underground Railroad displayed quilts with coded messages to help people escaping slavery to find safe passage. And in the 20th century, black travelers used the Green Book to navigate as safely as they could. And now in the 21st century, two Colorado women have created an online guide that aims to do something similar. The website is called The Inclusive Guide, and it allows users to rate their experiences at businesses and other spaces. Those ratings provide insight about how others with similar identities have been treated and whether they'll be welcomed at a given business. Crystal Egley and Parker McMullen Bushman are the co-founders of Inclusive Journeys, a tech startup that created the Inclusive Guide. I had the chance to speak with them back in January. Here's a portion of that interview, which begins with Crystal Egley explaining how their project fits into the history of these guides. Yeah, it's it's incredible to be part of that legacy and kind of insert ourselves in there. Um, our logo is from the quilt code you mentioned at the top of the story. I actually have the quilt behind me in my office that I work in at home. 
And on the quilt is the flying geese pattern. Um, and if you look at that, that's actually um, our logo is a modernized version of one of the quilt codes that means safe food, water, shelter. Um, and that to us signify is a very strong um, callback to people who have done this work before us. There's always somebody who has been doing this work before us. We stand on the shoulders of our ancestors uh, when we do when we do this work. And the work never going to have a finish line. I don't. I, I. There's. It's always just the work. So when folks oftentimes ask us who our competition is out there. Uh, we actually don't like to think of the other folks out there right now as competition. Um, you know, there's more than one user review website. There's more than one movie theater chain. There's more than one travel booking website. There's there's so many tables. We don't need everyone to be at ours. Um, there's different websites out there that are starting to come out. And we really support them. And we actually are in touch with a lot of the founders of other folks out there doing similar work to ours. Ours is a bit different from them and they're different from others just in the way that um, other industries have multiple facets for different reasons and different users. So we really see ourselves as, as a, a stepping stone on a path, right? on a trail um, and we're not the end all be all of everything. And we wanna be really humble in that. Um, you know, we weren't the ones that came up with this original idea. We're not the last ones who are gonna be working on it, but I do hope we can help move the needle forward um, and be part of the change that, that is coming, that is here. Um, and that has been happening for, for a long time. Crystal just mentioned other sites, and I wanted to ask about how this is different from something like Google Reviews or Yelp, because really this is about affirming businesses who are starting to do the work, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's some things that we think are, are really important about the way we've set up, up the site. Uh, there are some platforms that are allowing businesses to say that they are welcoming and open to everyone. But what is different about our site is um, we are allowing the people who visit the space to say that because sometimes we feel we want to be open we want to be welcoming to everyone but maybe we don't have the exact tools to be able to do that and when people come into our spaces they might have a different experience based on their identity and we don't even realize and so by getting this feedback and giving businesses that feedback the business side of it is really what sets our website apart Part because we want to provide businesses with resources. We don't just want to leave them if they get a review that isn't favorable or if they have a trend of reviews that are not favorable. We're not just going to leave them and say, well, that that's y'all, right? We actually are providing resources and providing, We businesses can do everything from opting into trainings that will help them uh, better train their staff and um, figure out what within their spaces would make their space more inclusive. They could call us in to give audits of their business and provide focus groups, right? So there are things that we can help businesses do based on the feedback that they are they are getting back and if they really want to figure out how to serve their whole community we want to help be a part of of that solution 
Crystal Egley and Parker McMullen Bushman are the co-founders of Inclusive Journeys, the tech startup that created the Inclusive Guide. Thanks so much for talking with us and good luck to you both. Thank you, Erin, so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, I can't not mention one of the strangest things to happen to me in my lifetime. And considering we've been living through a pandemic, that's saying a lot. In August of 2020, specifically on the morning of Monday, August 24th, I started getting a ton of social media mentions and new followers on Twitter, but they were all from Canada. I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of Twitter mentions, enough to make my phone start to get pretty overheated. I realized these follows and these sometimes angry messages weren't actually meant for me. People were mistaking me for another Aaron O'Toole, who spells his name exactly the same way that I do, but who is a politician who had just the night before been elected leader of the Conservative Party in Canada. News of the Twitter name mix-up reached their office, and I had the chance to talk with the other Aaron O'Toole all about how Canadian politics work and about how our Twitter twin saga seemed to bring some much-needed joy and levity to at least our little corner of the social media sphere. Aaron O'Toole, it's a pleasure for Aaron O'Toole to be with you. I love your name. Let me just start out by saying that. I, I do as well, and uh, I knew you existed, and I knew there's a few others I seem to be the only uh, uh, guy Aaron O'Toole in the mix, but uh, it's it's been fun to to see the story about your Twitter followers, and uh, this is great to talk to you. When did you become aware of the Twitter name mix-up? Did that happen Monday or later in the week? I think my my director of communications, Melanie, I think told me maybe Monday or maybe Tuesday, and I found it hilarious, and I felt like saying, well. I'd love to chat with this Aaron O'Toole. And is there any way we could send all the trolls on Twitter to the Aaron O'Toole in Colorado as opposed to me? <laughs> um, but I wouldn't do that to you. You don't deserve that. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to hear how your account went up. Uh, mine has as well. But uh, it was really, really great. As I said, I've, I've, I've encountered many Aaron O'Tools when I was buying domain names and things like this as a new politician years ago. And uh, it's been it's been fun to to connect with you directly. I had another Erin O'Toole reach out to me. She's actually not on Twitter, but she does have the original Erin O'Toole Gmail, I think. And she said she gets some messages for you from time to time. <laughs> well, there's an artist in California that uh, and she's, I think, a gallery curator. So when I got in, I wanted to get ErinOtoole.com and, and she had it. Uh, so I was kind of late to the Aaron O'Toole race for social media, I guess. I, I was a lawyer and I was in the military before I became a politician. And uh, it's been fun. When I was a lawyer, I always had to use Mr. Aaron O'Toole because most mail I get is for Ms. Aaron O'Toole. Uh, but I'm used to that by now. I, uh, I, I love it. And, uh, but I've never been interviewed by myself. In many ways, it's like I'm looking in a mirror, Aaron. <laughs> in many ways. I'd have to agree. I'm not wearing a tie, but other well, than that. But you share my birthday, too, or we share a birthday, which is also a very crazy twist to this as well. It really is. So, I mean, if, if you don't mind me saying so, it's January 22nd, commence the birthday cards. Um, <laughs> there were a few mathematically inclined people on Twitter who volunteered to kind of figure out the odds of not only sharing the same name, but sharing a birthday. It was very, very low. Well, we should both go out and buy lottery cards tonight because we're uh, 
We have the luck of the Irish already, Aaron, but uh, it, 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 that was, and I'm clearly older. I don't know what year attaches to your January 22nd, but I think I'm much older. <laughs> Well, just briefly here, a lot of people, uh, I've done a few interviews this week with Canadian broadcasters, which has been amazing and so much fun. A lot of people have asked if I've ever been to Canada, which I have. I'm wondering if you have ever been to Colorado. You know, no, I have not. And I, I almost got to Colorado Springs when I was in the Air Force because, of course, NORAD, uh, Canadians serve alongside our American allies in, in Colorado Springs. And I remind a lot of people, including when I go to Congress, that uh, a Canadian was on duty as the senior officer on 9-11. And I wanted to, to visit that base and I never, never got there. But uh, if I do get the chance, per, perhaps I can have my follow-up interview with Aaron O'Toole. That was the Honourable Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, Aaron, on behalf of the Aaron O'Toole family in Canada, sending best to the Aaron O'Toole family in Colorado. And likewise. Thank you. And just to update, earlier this year, Aaron O'Toole lost the leadership position, although he's continuing to serve as a member of parliament. His interim replacement, and I'm not making this up, is a person named Candace Bergen. Now, before I let you go, I want to go back to one of the very first interviews I did for the show back in 2019. James Nehus is the artist behind many of the trail maps that you get at ski resorts. He's designed and painted by hand ski maps for hundreds of resorts on five continents, including Vail, Breckenridge, and Winter Park here in Colorado. Some of his work has been published in a coffee table book called The Man Behind the Maps. In the fall of 2019, I visited Nihus at his studio in Parker to discuss how he designs the maps and what his work has meant to him and others. I've been doing it for 30 years, and um, about 200 different resorts uh, have my trail maps. Can you describe the process of making these beautiful maps? Well, the most important thing is to remember that we're making a map. So the, the most important thing is to make sure that it's clear to the skiers of how to get down the mountain. It's important to also portray it in such a manner that when they're on the mountain and they look around, they can relate to the trail map. So they can say, hey, right, I'm right here. And uh, it's something that I really try to do. It's the, uh, what my predecessors did. And then, of course, like them, I wanted to make it beautiful too. So it's very important, I think, to get into the painting of it. Today, there's quite a few computer-generated maps out there. And, and there for a while in the late 1990s and early 2000, the industry was kind of turning to computer because it was the new thing, you know, and it's going to be better. And uh, it was not. <laughs> A lot of those who return to my work, it's more natural. I'm painting the great outdoors. They're skiers that come in to enjoy the great outdoors. And the computer image is a reflection of the office. So I wanted to ask you what the history of ski maps being designed by actual people versus just computers. I mean, <laughs> what do you, where is this going? Well, since the 1960s and Hal Sheldon, they've been painted because that was the only way to do it. There was no computers in those days. Even Hal, by the end of his career, could start seeing that computers were on the horizon. He made a comment one time that we really 
can't let the human element get out of the uh, map in the making of the map. And um, that's really how I feel about it. Computers are accurate and they see things that, in a different way, I believe. And a lot of the computer-generated maps that were in the 19, late 1990s and early 2000s was really the computers are only used as a tool to do the actual painting so you never really gained anything it was still some person's expression but using a computer today it's it's a little different and it's it can be done with uh, satellite imagery of course and so forth do you fly over in a plane how do you get the imagery once i uh, do pick up a job i um, get all the information i can from the ski area Anything like their site maps, their uh, projections on what they have to uh, consider in the future and so forth. And then I'll fly the area. And I'll start very high. I, I start about 2,000 feet above the ski area and get a, good, a lot of panoramic views from different perspectives. And then I'll, uh, I'll drop the airplane down to about 500 feet above the summit and do the detail shots of those slopes and drop it even further to about mid-mountain. But uh, we'll fly down 50% down the mountain and get all the detail of the base. And then you come back and we're in your studio right now, and then you just begin painting? Well, no, I'll, uh, I'll go through a, a sketch period when, when I'll pull out all the photographs and, and look at them and, and refer to them and put the mountain together. It's, it's a big puzzle, which I really enjoy. Lots of slopes are, are facing away from the view, so I'm, I need to figure out how I manipulate this mountain in a very realistic way so that all the slopes can be seen on one dimension. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll work out this sketch. I'll do a very comprehensive sketch, and that is sent to the client. The client will make alterations to it or approve it. And from that, I'll project that image right directly onto the painting surface and then paint the image. And once it's painted, it'll be sent again to the client for the final approval. How accurate are the trees? The trees are very accurate. Uh, I had a fear early on that some skier might ski into a tree, look on the map and say, hey, that wasn't there. So, uh, you know, the, the nation was so happy. So, that's, so I've, I've been very careful where I place trees. Do you think of your maps as pieces of art? I used to think of them more as maps, but towards 15 years ago onward, I really felt that they were more art than map because I'm really uh, manipulating a lot of the image to get it into one view and, and playing with the color. It sounds like this career has been one that's brought you a lot of fulfillment. <clears throat> when I first started doing this, I was looking for a job. I was looking for a a way to make a living. And as I got into it and really got to know the industry and the people in it and the skiers, it became a real passion. Whenever I paint a trail map, I paint it for the skier, not for the resort. And I'll sometimes resist what the resort wants to do because I see the beauty of it and and I want to keep it real and something that they can relate to and trust. And I think it's been so gratifying through the years that that I know that skiers, I've heard skiers come back and listen to their 
their accolades of, boy, I can trust you. I, I know that you've done it right. And I look so forward to seeing your map at the ski resort. What do you think these maps mean to skiers? Well, I hope, and I get the feedback that skiers will come down and open up the trail maps and over a beer they'll uh, talk about their day, you know, and what spills they took or what thrills they had. And uh, it it just uh, is so gratifying to know that they're looking at my art and reflecting on their skiing. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. That is all for today's Colorado edition. Thank you so much for listening. It's been an incredible privilege to be able to do this job for the last few years. And I'm so grateful to everyone who made the show possible, including our producers, Lily Tyson, Ray Solomon, Alana Schreiber, and Tess Novotny, Jackie High, Adam Reyes, and my longtime co-host, Henry Zimmerman. The show wouldn't be the same without your contributions. Thanks to Ashley Jeffcoat, KUNC's Digital Operations Manager, for handling all things digital. And a big shout out to Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs for creating such cool theme music. It's very meaningful, I think, to have Colorado musicians be part of the show, and they really rocked it. Colorado Edition will continue as part of the KUNC newsroom, and I know you're in great hands. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app if you haven't already. I am personally a subscriber, so I know I won't miss out on what the KUNC News team is up to. Thank you again so very much for coming along on this journey with me, and thanks for all of your support. I'm Erin O'Toole. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.